The Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival creates and performs on the land of the Lekwungen and Wasainic peoples. We respect the relationship they continue to have with the land to this day and the strength of generational resilience in the face of ongoing systemic colonial violence and genocide. We are committed to the ongoing process of unlearning deeply embedded notions of white supremacy and colonial racism and to continuing to become better allies wherever we can. As you listen to this podcast, please consider your relationship to this land and remember that every settler is responsible for dismantling the colonial genocide that Indigenous people continue to face. Welcome to the Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival's Soliloquy Project. Today's play is Hamlet. Sound design and theme song for this podcast are by Taylor Lewis. The outro is presented by General Manager Candace Woodland. The podcast is hosted by Artistic Director Karen Lee Pickett. She interviews Dr. Aaron Kelly. I'm here again with Dr. Aaron Kelly, Associate Professor uh, of English at the University of Victoria. Hello, Karen. It's good to see you again. It is very good to see you. And today we are talking about Hamlet. We're, we're here at last. I'm so excited. Um, of course, I've been, uh, I've been grappling with this play more than usual uh, over the past uh, little while. Um, so first off, I just want to ask you, uh, because we've, <laughs> we've chosen this uh, piece for the soliloquy project, but this is not, in fact, a soliloquy. Right, right. So a soliloquy most strictly defined with that idea of, you know, solo is a character who is on stage by themselves, all alone, solo. Um, and therefore soliloquies are often seen to be uh, long speeches that a character is addressing to themselves, by themselves, and that it can be seen as an expression of inmost thoughts, possibly logicking through a problem um, and, you know, in some cases speaking to the audience, but as though the audience is kind of a sounding board or confidant, those kinds of things we associate with soliloquies. This is actually not a soliloquy, it's a speech. And it's a speech that is being delivered by Hamlet very specifically to two other characters who are on stage with him and interacting with him and listening to what he's saying. These characters being Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, uh, Hamlet's school friends who have shown up at Elsinore uh, to unexpectedly spend time with him and as he kind of suspects and begins to confirm in this scene uh, because they were sent for and so that they can get a bit of a sense of what is up with him and why he's behaving so strangely. And so this is, you know, this is part of that, uh, part of that scene. Maybe talk a little bit about where this sits in the play as hmm. a whole. Right. So where this sits in the play as a whole is, you know, Hamlet has up until this point, um, his, obviously at the beginning of the play, his father is dead. His mother has remarried with what he sees as um, an improper rate of speed and has married his father's brother, his, his uncle Claudius. Hamlet already thinks all of this is upsetting and you know, untoward and improper, even before the ghost of his father shows up and says, oh, by the way, 
um, I was actually murdered, and the person who murdered me is now the king because it's my brother and your uncle who's now married to your mother. Um, go sort that out, okay? Um, and Hamlet uh, has quite a lot to think about in terms of how he will uh, write this situation and what is the proper thing to do. Um, one of the things that he does come up with is the idea that he will put an antic disposition on. In other words, that he will pretend that he is uh, mentally unstable and uh, part of why Rosencrantz and Guildenstern have been sent for is to try to figure out uh, what is going on with Hamlet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and he's, um, but he's on to them for sure. He, he, he is at least suspicious. And that said, Hamlet at this point is suspicious of everyone because, um, you know, finding out that your father's been murdered and that the person who's currently the king is the person who, who done did the murder is the sort of thing that makes one paranoid. An interesting thing about this speech is that it is, uh, it's part of the play that's in prose. Absolutely. And I, I feel like a lot of people, if they remember anything from, you know, maybe a middle school class or a high school class where they read Shakespeare is some kind of, you know, quick lesson that they got that said, oh, upper class characters speak in verse and lower class characters speak in prose. Now go have a day. Um, and as with so many things in Shakespeare, that's true, except when it's not. And quite a lot of the time, that isn't exactly true. Um, that's that's a gross oversimplification. Um, that, you know, there are plenty of moments that we can find all across Shakespeare's plays where high status, powerful characters speak in prose, uh, moments when low status kind of commoner characters or even clown characters will suddenly switch into verse. Um, and that often those switches are telling because it calls attention to, to the language of the play and calls attention to something that's going on with the character that might be bringing about a change. All of those big famous speeches that people associate with Hamlet, you know, to be or not to be, oh, what a rogue and pleasant, peasant slave am I, et cetera, et cetera. Those are all verse, they're iambic pentameter. This particular speech is in prose, but it's not just because it's in prose rather than verse doesn't mean it's everyday language. In fact, the language here is arguably at least as intricate, if not more intricate, mannered, um, artificial, not artificial as a, as a, a dig, as a, as a criticism, artificial in the sense of highly ornate, um, than even a lot of Hamlet's verse. Um, this is a speech where in his prose, uh, you'll notice that Hamlet has really, really, really long sentences and long sentences with a lot of self-interruption, with lots of subordinate clauses and phrases embedded, um, lots of parallelism, lots of long strings of phrases. Um, there's quite a lot of very vivid visual imagery 
in here. Um, there is, are a lot of uh, moments of parallelism, antithesis, sort of holding things up against each other um, to create strong contrasts. So in other words, this is really a tour de force example of rhetoric. Um, rhetoric being defined as the art of persuasive speech and rhetoric being something that um, any 16th, 17th century English schoolboy as Shakespeare would have been when he went to grammar school. Um, rhetoric would have been explicitly part of the curriculum. This is something that uh, boys would have studied in school, that people were interested in, were, were good at. It sounds different than a lot of Hamlet's language elsewhere in the play. Um, it is more mannered and more formal than some of Hamlet's other moments in the play. And so I think that in that way, um, Given that information and given the fact that it's in front of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, one of the things that um, this speech gives us occasion to ask is, to what extent is Hamlet revealing anything here? And to what extent is he actually concealing? Um, is he presenting a lot of very highly formal, highly mannered, highly ornate language that hides as much as it reveals, that conceals as much as it opens up. Um, the, the speech itself does that in terms of its content as well. I mean, very early on in the speech, um, when Hamlet says, you know, the earth seems to me a sterile promontory. We've already heard Hamlet earlier in the play go on and on and on about the idea of seeming. You know, what is the difference between seeming and being? What is the difference between appearance and reality? And, you know, this is a speech that kind of hinges on balance between appearance and reality, that somehow Hamlet is simultaneously revealing that maybe the earth is all of these good and wonderful things. Maybe mankind is all of these good and wonderful things. But to him, uh, the earth seems barren. To him, you know, mankind seems a quintessence of dust. Um, are we supposed to share Hamlet's perspective? Are we supposed to be um, distant from it and able to critique it and stand back from it and think about it? And Along those lines, what is he asking of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern here? Um, these are his school friends. Um, when he engages in this kind of ornate language, is he inviting them in by engaging in witty wordplay that maybe they also would be capable of engaging in? Is he holding them at arm's length? Um, and so I think it's a, it's a very uh, tricky speech. Um, and in that way... Uh, is, is very telling of what kind of character Hamlet is, that it's always so difficult to pin Hamlet down to figure out what he's thinking, what he's doing, what he's up to, whether he's feigning, whether he is being genuine, right. whether he's seeming, or whether he's being. Sometimes it seems yeah, like Hamlet bring... himself isn't sure, right? Right, right. And you bring up a good point about that, uh, that well, I mean, one of the many reasons why... I, I love this play is all the the great stuff about theater that's in the play Absolutely. and uh, both explicitly and kind of implicitly. 
Yet, yet one more thing that's going on in this speech is that, you know, yes, uh, Hamlet is describing, you know, quote, the earth. But of course, this is a speech that an actor playing Hamlet, a player portraying Hamlet, would be delivering in a theater called The Globe and would do so while standing under an overhanging roof that based on all evidence we have, was fretted, um, was decorated with gilding, with golden fire. Um, And so you basically have a player who is simultaneously referring to the earth and the heavens, um, but also referring to the theater in which he is standing while performing this role and calling attention to the fact that he's standing on a stage. And if it seems a barren promontory, maybe that's because the stage is basically an empty promontory, outcropping a a blank platform, an empty platform that everybody is just pretending is this Danish kingdom. So it's a deliciously metatheatrical moment, a moment when the play calls the audience's attention to the fact that what they're watching is a play, that what they're doing is standing in a theater, that what they're doing is watching an actor on stage. Um, And Hamlet does quite a lot of that too. And whenever he compares himself to a player, it simultaneously is a metatheatrical moment, as well as Hamlet, the character, calling attention to the ways in which he understands himself to always have to be pretending, seeming, dare we call it, acting. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, this also makes me think of the, the different versions of this play um, that, that exist. I mean, there are um, uh, how many? There are a lot. Um, four, the, the, at least so, four. So ha- but what, what we call Hamlet is actually um, at least two plays and maybe three, depending on how you count. There are two major texts of Hamlet um, that for a long time editors and critics have thought of as kind of the pretty good ones. There is then a later version that gets printed in 1623 as part of the first folio of Shakespeare's plays. And that version also has a lot of the things that we think of as Hamlet. It happens to have a couple of additional speeches. It, it leaves a couple things out and it adds a couple of things. But then something really strange happened in the 19th century. Um, An earlier single play text of Hamlet was actually discovered. And that text of Hamlet is different. The king who is the uncle in that first quarto doesn't have a name. He's just king. Uh, Hamlet in that first quarto says, to be or not to be, either's the point. And one of the differences is you know, in fact, this speech. Um, There is in that first quarto, um, there are Rosencrantz and Guildenstern equivalents. Their names are slightly different. Um, 
who show up who are old school friends of, of Hamlet's. But basically, the only remnants or the, the kind of proto version of the speech we might think of it as is that basically, you know, they are joshing around with him and he makes a kind of one line joke about mankind delights not me. No, women don't delight me either. Don't have a dirty mind, essentially. Um, so, so this what becomes this long ornate speech is there in kind of a germ form. And I think that really speaks to, you know, what is some of the difference between that first Cordo Hamlet and what turns into what we now think of as, quote, really Hamlet. Um, the second Cordo Hamlet and the Folio Hamlet gives Hamlet lots and lots and lots of speeches. He's quite eloquent, um, very, very ornate language, and lots and lots and lots of philosophical musings, thinking about the nature of the world, the nature of life, the nature of humanity, the nature of the, the things that people think make Hamlet, Hamlet. It raises lots of questions about, you know, if we're used to thinking of Hamlet as a single play and a single character, to really have to take seriously the idea that actually what we think of as Hamlet is constructed. It's constructed out of several different texts. It's constructed out of literally hundreds of years of performance and performance conventions. There isn't really just one thing that we can point to and say, absolutely, that's Hamlet. We've now got it pinned down. And that's even before we begin to bring in our own questions of interpretation and understanding. And so, you know, in that way, I think uh, this speech is really um, connecting to some of the things that, you know, make Hamlet Hamlet, you know, back to um, kind of the, the muchness of it. Um, Hamlet, I think of as a play, and this speech is a good example of this, as being really too much. Um, that too muchness is very much what I think of as a Renaissance aesthetic. Um, if, if you're a rhetorician, the, the fancy uh, kind of Latinate term for this is copia. Um, copia is basically the Latin word for muchness, plentitude. We still have this with us when at you know Thanksgiving you put on your table a cornucopia. Cornu is, is horn and copia plenty. A, a horn of plenty is a cornucopia. Um, copia basically is an aesthetic whereby you include too much. You include many versions of something. Um, you include more than you need. Um, it is the opposite of minimalism. It is maximalist. Or as I like to explain sometimes to students, why would you explain it in 10 words when you could explain it in 250 words that are full of elaborate figures of speech? Um, this idea that more is always better, more is more, um, I think is all over this speech. You know, Hamlet um, tends to go on. He tends to be an and, and, and kind of character. Um, more description, more examples, more ideas, more, 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 more. Um, and that that is part of what we think of as really characteristic of this character and this play. I think that, you know, having to confront evidence that it's a play that maybe didn't start out this way, but accreted over time, um, frees us up as audience members, maybe frees performers up, maybe 
frees theater companies up to realize that if you are cutting or if you are making choices or if you are stressing some things and not other things, that maybe you are participating in exactly the same kinds of choices and dynamics that might have been going on uh, when the play was being written and when the play was first being performed. Um, I don't think we can say with any certainty that you know every single person seeing a first performance of Hamlet would be getting every single word and every single idea and understanding every single moment. Um, or even that every performance would be including every single word of every text that has ever come to be associated and, and known as Hamlet. Um, Kenneth Branagh, a bunch of years ago, did a film version of Hamlet that uh, sometimes gets referred to as a conflated version. It literally includes a scene. Uh, if there's a scene in only one of the texts, it's in that film. If there's a speech that's in only one of the texts, it's in that film. And what happens when you do that is you wind up with something that is a little over four hours long. Um, it is not clear that anybody in the 16th, late 16th and into the 17th century, you know, wanted a four-hour play. Um, we have four hours worth of stuff that I think we can intelligently and interestingly mix and match and turn into a Hamlet. Think of it as choose your own adventure. And this speech is kind of one of those choose your own adventure moments, I think. Um, is it still Hamlet if you put the speech in? Is it still Hamlet if you leave the speech out? Well, it's, it's, it's a piece of what you have available to make up your Hamlet. Oh, that, that's great. And it's a, a good thing to think about as we, as we uh, move forward into, uh, into the new year and uh, hopefully, you know, um, I have a lots of opportunity to, uh, to engage with, display and, and other plays. So thanks so much for this, Erin. Thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to talking to you some more about some other plays. Great. Thank you for listening to The Soliloquy Project, produced by the Greater Victoria Shakespeare Festival. To donate or for more information about our festival, please visit www.vicshakespeare.com. That's www.vicshakespeare.com. Stay safe and cozy this winter, and we'll see you again soon.